Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful. Kindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Now shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. God, who instructed the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Heal Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Mother of the Eucharist, pray for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our theme for tonight is our participation in offering the sacrifice. All right, so last week we saw that the Mass is a sacrifice, the Christian sacrifice, the sacrifice of Calvary, and essentially the same sacrifice, but different, how? In the mode of offering. Calvary was offered in a bloody, uh, death-producing way, and the Mass is the unbloody sacrifice. Right? But we've got the same victim and the same priest and the same intention, our salvation. Right? So it's essentially the same, but differing in the mode of offering. And there's another difference. right? So the key difference, the first most apparent difference, is unbloody rather than bloody. But there's a second difference, and that's on Calvary. Who was there? Right, Mary was there. John was there, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Clopas, and maybe that's all of the disciples. But today, in Mass upstairs, and at least I was there, and maybe you were there, or at least on Sunday you were there. Right? And so the Mass differs from Calvary because it's offered not just by Jesus alone, or by Jesus together with Mary and John, but offered by all of us, right? And that's why he gave us the Mass, so that we could share in the offering. So that's what we want to look at tonight. What does that mean, and what do we bring to it, and is it real? And our answer can be, yes. And what do we bring to it? Our whole lives. Okay? So that's our theme. So last time, we, we saw that Mass... I'm sorry, that sacrifice is um, necessary in part because we're social beings, right? So he said that um, God didn't want us each simply to go off in our own corner and worship God interiorly. I mean, he does want that, but he doesn't only want that, right? Because we are, yes, spiritual beings that need to worship interiorly, but we're also social, bodily, um, visible beings that need to worship visibly and communally, right? And so 
the, um, the sacrifice of the Mass enables us to join socially in the offer. So let's look at how we um, offer the Mass. We said every sacrifice involves two parts. There's an interior part and an exterior part. Right? The interior part is the interior sacrifice that we make in our heart. The exterior part is the victim that's offered externally. Right? So in ancient Israel, there were both of those parts. There was the interior offering and then the paschal lamb or the other animals that were sacrificed and offered. And likewise in the mass, we have both of those parts. Right? There's the external offering, and in this case, the external offering is not a, uh, a lamb or goat, but the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, made present through transubstantiation, as we explained in the second class, but really present. And therefore, we've got an exterior victim. It's true, he's veiled. We can't see him. We see the appearances of bread and wine, but nevertheless, there's an exterior offering, but there's also has to be an interior offering. Right? And that's the interior offering of the heart. And the sacrifice requires both parts. So we have a key part to play. Right? The ministerial priest offers the exterior sacrifice, but he can't replace us in offering the interior sacrifice. Okay. So that's the key point. And everything else is just going to be elaborating on that. Right? In other words, not everything is delegated to the priest. Right? We need a priest, and we explained that last week. Right? We need a priest because we're social beings, and we want to offer one sacrifice for all of us together. Right? And so we need someone to do that. And not only that, in order to get the same sacrifice as Calvary, we need not only the same victim, but the same priest. So we need a ministerial priest who's going to act in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? So that's why we need the ministerial priest. And he needs to have holy orders and be rightly ordained so that he can act not just in his person, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we absolutely need him, but he doesn't replace us. Right, that's the key thing. We can delegate to him the external offering. We have to, because we can't do it ourselves. Right? We can't make Jesus Christ present on the altar, any one of us. But we can't delegate the interior offering to the priest. Right? And um, this... We human beings tend to sometimes be overly passive, right? That we can think we can have that mentality that Father does it, offers a sacrifice, and we're I don't know, spectators. Um, and we'll have more to say about that. But obviously, that would be missing the fact that we're actually doing um, the interior part, right? Which, in religion, is the most important. Uh, I don't. That'll be clarified in just a minute. In other words, we don't want, there could, you could make two errors here. Obviously, excessively exaggerate um, the common priesthood or exaggerate the ministerial priesthood in such a way that one forgets that we're co-offerers. Okay? And so we want to avoid both of those mistakes.
Um, let's look at how this was in Israel. So in ancient Israel, there was a ministerial priesthood, right? Who was the ministerial priesthood? Aaron and his sons, so the sons of Aaron, the family of Aaron. And nobody else could take that to themselves, right? It was stipulated by God. And then the, the Levites helped them, right? So there was a ministerial priesthood in Israel. But there wasn't only a ministerial priesthood because all of Israel in some way was said to have a priesthood. And we see that on Mount Sinai that um, in, um, in chapter 19 of Exodus, when, God, when Moses ratifies the covenant between Israel and God, God says, you are my peculiar people from among the nations and I will make you a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood to offer sacrifice. Right? So even though only Aaron and his sons could offer exteriorly, ministerially, all of Israel was said to be a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. Right? And that refers to the interior offering that each one um, makes in the heart, which the exterior offering represents, right? And so in ancient Israel, which would have been more important, the lamb that was offered or the interior offering of the heart? The second, right? Even though those lambs were important, um, nevertheless, if the, sec if the interior part is lacking, what does God say? It's an abomination. And we've got lots of texts like that. So one text is from Isaiah, first chapter, Verses 11 through 15, God says this, What is to me the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he goats. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, the problem isn't that they were offering the things that he asked I mean, that, that's a good thing, right? The problem was they weren't also offering the principal thing um, and putting together interior iniquity with exterior religiosity. Right? That's the abomination. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates, they become a burden to me. When you spread forth your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Right? And what's the reason? Your hands are full of blood. Right? And so, the exterior offering is no good if there's not an interior offering that it represents. Even if it's God himself who commands that offering. Right? Okay, so God isn't saying he didn't want sacrifice from them. He's saying he wanted a sacrifice that reflects the interior. But he said it in a really graphic, strong way. And we should take that seriously as applying to us as well. All right, so let's look now at the New Testament. So um, that text from Exodus 19, you are a kingdom of priests, gets quoted several times in the New Testament. So Peter quotes it in his first letter, the second chapter. It's a great text. Um, the 2 Peter verse 9, he says, you are a chosen race, speaking now to the Christians. Right? You are a chosen race, um, not not the Jewish people, right? The chosen race now of those who are incorporated into the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And so the whole church is said to have a royal or common priesthood. 
Right? And we get that from what? When do we get that? When do we get that priesthood? You know, baptism, exactly. We get that priesthood at baptism and it's strengthened in confirmation. So that's when we become um, royal priests. Um, the book of Revelation also cites the same text. And it says, to him who, has, who loves us, this is chapter one, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. That's Revelation. So, um, Revelation 5 does the same idea. Um, so it's speaking here about Christ, that Christ, um, you are slain and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. This is the idea that all the baptized and confirmed share in the three missions of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Right? And that, so by virtue of baptism and confirmation, we are royal priests, prophets, priests, and kings. And therefore there has to be a sacrifice that we offer, and that sacrifice is the mass, but there's something that we personally offer, and that's our Christian life. Right? That's the interior part. Another text is, uh, well, maybe the most important one is Romans 12. And the first few verses. And St. Paul tells us there, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what's the Christian sacrifice? All right, it's, it's Christ, but it's also our bodies, meaning our whole Christian lives, our bodies and everything we do in the body. And so he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's actually a difficult phrase to translate. That's the RSV, what I've just read, your spiritual worship. But the Greek says something like this, your worship in the logos. And so our spiritual worship could also be translated our worship in the word, our worship in Christ, um, but also our um, participation in him. All right, and so it involves the whole of our Christian life, um, a worship in the logos. And so the fathers of the church um, love this text of Romans, and, and there are many commentaries that speak about the common priesthood of the faithful and how we should, um, what the dignity of the Christian life because of that. And so, um, Father, um, so one father, Peter Chrysologus, says, um, listen to what the apostle urges us to do, right? to present your body as a living sacrifice, each of us is called to be both a sacrifice and a priest, right? Because we, we're, we're the sacrifice and we offer ourselves. And the first one who was both priest and sacrifice was Jesus, right? So on Calvary, Jesus was priest and victim. In the, new, in the old covenant, it didn't work that way, right? The priest offered something exterior, or lamb or bull that was different than him. 
But in the new covenant, priest and victim are one and the same. Right? Jesus Christ, priest and victim, but also all those who are incorporated into his priesthood are called to be both priest and victim. Right? And victim simply means um, receiving the sacrifices of the Christian life. Right? The sacrifices of fidelity, the sacrifices of self-giving love. Saint Augustine loves this text, but he takes it in a different way. He says, um, your bodies, so Saint Paul says, um, present your bodies as living sacrifice. Saint Augustine um, loves the theology of the mystical body. And so he reads it, make, present your body, meaning the whole mystical body. And so in some way what we offer is our love for the whole church. Right? And so our desire, for the church, our desire that um, it spread, that it grow in holiness, etc. Our sorrow for its blemishes and, and wounds. So St. Augustine says that it follows that the whole of the redeemed city, the whole of the church, is offered as a universal sacrifice to God through the high priest, Jesus Christ, who offered himself for us that we might be the body of so glorious a head. Right? So in the mass, we should think there's two sacrifices in a sense that are made one. The head is offered and the body is meant to be offered with him. Right? But to be rightly offered, we have to be configured to him. Right? And therefore, we're gonna be not always equally successful in offering ourselves because we have to be living in accordance with it. All right? Does that make sense so far? And this is why there's not just one mass in our lifetime. Now, this is why it's a great blessing that there's a weekly mass obligation so that we can each week, or if we are so able to do so every day, in fact, offer ourselves better today than yesterday, etc. Okay? Pope Benedict has a... Mm -hmm. That's from the City of God, and book 10. That's where he speaks about sacrifice. So that's a key text for the Mass and for St. Augustine. And, and Pope Benedict quotes him. Pope Benedict is an Augustine scholar, loves Augustine. And um, Pope Benedict speaks about Romans 12 in his Sacramentum Caritatis. That's his document on the Mass from 2007. So he speaks about this spiritual sacrifice or sacrifice in the Logos and quotes St. Augustine, right, that we're um, sacrificing the whole mystical body and speaks about what does that mean? Well, what it means is, um, so Paul elsewhere says, whatever you do, right, whether you eat or drink, sleep or wake, do it unto God. Right? Do it for the glory of God. And so that's, that's also how we do this. In other words, by doing that outside the Mass, our whole life can then be offered. And that means that what we bring to the Mass is, yes, our difficulties, right? Sacri so when we think of sacrifice, I don't know, most people probably think of the, right, the painful part, the Lenten sacrifices, the, I don't know, giving up dessert or whatever, but it's also 
the happy moments, right? It's the joy as well as the sorrow. It's the recreation as well as the work. So what we're called to offer is, yes, um, the whole web of our life done in Christ, right? And so that would mean recreation as well as work, but work as well as um, worship, family life, um, friendship. So Pope Benedict says, Christians in all their actions are called to offer true worship to God. Here, the Eucharistic nature of the Christian life begins to take shape. So his idea is this, that the whole of, we tend to put things in categories, right? There's worship, we do that on Sunday, and there's life, um, and this is a huge problem. In fact, this, um, most Catholics live probably a nominally Catholic life in which if, if they even go to Sunday Mass, all right, 25, 30% go to Sunday Mass, 70% don't, but let's take those that do. It's, we're still tempted to make that just a category, right? A part, I do my worship and I check it off. Um, but Pope Benedict's speaking about the Eucharistic shape of the whole of Christian life because everything we do outside, in other words, what are we supposed to bring to the Mass? What we do outside of the Mass not just what we do inside. So I wouldn't have anything to offer if I weren't bringing what I do outside. All right. The Eucharist, Pope Benedict says, since it embraces the concrete everyday existence of the believer, makes possible day by day the progressive transfiguration of the Christian. There's nothing authentically human, our thoughts, our affections, our words, or deeds, that doesn't find in the Eucharist the form it needs to be lived to the full. And so we're gonna see, there's a, a phrase from the Second Vatican Council, I'm sure you've heard it, the Eucharist is the mm, source and summit of the Christian life. So that's what we're talking about here. It's the source, and that'll be the subject for next Wednesday. We'll look at Holy Communion. So it's the source, but it's the source because Jesus is present. It's the source because Jesus gives himself to the Father and wins all the graces for us. It's the source because we receive him, and we'll talk about that next week. But it's also the summit, the mountaintop of the Christian life. And that means that we've got to bring something to that mountaintop and that we bring, we're called to bring our lives to that. Right? That's how it's summit. In other words, Two directions. We, we looked at that last week. Christ comes down, descends, so that he can be offered by us and ourselves. So we're offering Christ, but we have to offer ourselves with him. And then, as a fruit, we receive him in communion. All right, so it's source and summit. That's the idea. Okay. So worship pleasing to God, this is Pope Benedict still, becomes a new way of living our whole life. Each particular moment of which is lifted up since it's lived as part of a relationship with Christ and as an offering to God, right? We may not 
Now, it's not necessary in order to do this that I explicitly think I'm teaching this class tonight so that I can offer it tomorrow morning. Um, that's, that's great to think that, right? That's a, that can be a helpful thing at the beginning of class to make an offering like that. That's the, basically the idea of the morning offering, right? I offer to you all of the, the events of this day, the difficulties, the joys, the sufferings, um, in union with the Holy Mass. Right? That, so the, the morning offering is simply the Eucharistic life. And so we can do that at other times during the day if we remember, but it's not necessary to do it explicitly. It's, um, it happens whether we consciously remember it or not. Okay? But to renew it, to, re to be aware of it is helpful. That's an understatement. All right, so there are two, so let's look a little more closely at the two priesthoods in the church. So we, we speak of the ministerial and common priesthood. All right, so the, and they both come from a sacrament, right? So the ministerial priesthood from the sacrament of holy orders, which presupposes baptism and confirmation. So priesthood comes from our baptismal and confirmation consecration. And the reason why I'm mentioning, um, normally we just speak of baptismal consecration, but it's really confirmation that's, that's crucial there because confirmation gives us a new mission on top of bap baptism makes us a member of the body and allows us to receive the other sacraments. But confirmation makes us an active member with a new mission and that new mission to actively build up the church. And how do we actively build it up? By sharing in Christ's three missions of prophet, priest, and king. Right? And so it's really our confirmation consecration that gives us this active mission to, um, to sanctify the world, and by doing so, to bring that to the mass as our offering. In other words, confirmation strengthens us so that we can bring something the Christian life to the offering. All right, so three consecrations, baptismal, confirmation, and holy orders, makes two priesthoods, the common and the ministerial. All right? And the Second Vatican Council teaches that there, um, there is not just a matter of degree. So we, this would be, again, thinking too passively, but I think it's, it's a very common idea that um, I'm not called to holiness, I'm not a priest or religious, that's for somebody else, right? As if holy orders gave a greater, I don't know, um, degree of being able to offer. And that's not the case. Um, holy orders enables something else. It enables the priest to act in the person of Christ and make Christ's offering present. But he too, shares in the common priesthood because he has to make the interior offering of the heart just as we do. And the fact that he's received holy orders doesn't make his interior offering better than ours. In fact, it gives him a greater responsibility. All right? So, um, so it's not a matter of degree. It's something essential, right? The ministerial priesthood can do something that we simply cannot do. And that's act in the person of Christ and therefore say those words, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, and have them have an effect. 
And likewise, other words, right? I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? So the, the two priesthoods differ essentially and not just in degree, but each one needs the other and is dependent on the other. Right? Let's take the ministerial priesthood. If there were no common priesthood, what would the ministerial priest be doing? And he, nobody has made, uh, ordained a priest for themselves, right? but he's ordained a priest for the faithful to, to minister them, to offer on their behalf. All right? But the faithful are absolutely dependent on the ministerial priest because yes, each one of us can do the interior offering, but it would remain just an interior offering if we didn't have Christ made present on the altar so that we could offer our interior offering with Christ's exterior offering. Right? And there's some benefit to this understatement. Um, the problem with our personal offering of the Christian life, we all know it, is that it's greatly imperfect. Right? We're not as faithful as we're called to be. We don't, in fact, love as we're called to do so. And so our personal offering is blemished. And that's, again, why it's beautiful that we've got many chances in life to offer it, hopefully better tomorrow than today, etc. next year than this year. But how glorious that we get to offer our imperfect, finite offering together with an infinite, perfect offering, the offering of Calvary, right? That's what happens in the Mass. In the Mass, we put, as it were, spiritually, our Christian life on the altar, on the pattern. That's, it used to be something that maybe kids would have learned in catechesis, that um, during the offertory is a good time to do this, and I suggest it. During the offertory, imagine that you're putting your whole Christian life on the pattern together with the bread that's put there that's not yet consecrated, so that when it's consecrated and offered, we'll be offering our life with it. Right? And so on the one and the same pattern, there's an infinite offering and our finite offering. But our finite offering is enhanced by being offered together with that of Jesus Christ. Right? That's one of the key reasons why he gave us the mass. Does that make sense to everyone? All right. And so we absolutely need that ministerial priest to make present the infinite sacrifice so that I can couple my finite sacrifice with the infinite one. Right? So we're totally dependent on the ministerial priesthood, but he likewise is dependent on us because without us, there's not the interior offering of the church. Okay? So far, so good? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's our, our Christian life, right? So what we're offering is our Christian life. Part of our Christian life is seen by others, but others can't see the heart. Only God sees the heart. And so the real value of our Christian life is known properly only to one, to God. But nevertheless, what we're offering is, sure, all our social interactions, all our efforts our friendship, our efforts to help others, our alms, our prayers, our um, whatever we do, yes, in the body, and whatever we do um, in prayer spiritually, all of that together. But we call it an interior offering because it's ultimately something properly known to God. 
because the value of what we do ultimately takes its value from the love with which we do it. Right? In other words, all Christian merit comes from charity, interior supernatural charity that we can't produce ourselves, that we have to receive in the sacraments, and it's invisible, and we can't know for sure that we have it or that our neighbor has it, but we can yeah, hope so and, um, and see good signs that that's the case. Right? And so that's what, that's what makes our offering pleasing to God, that it's offered with charity. And it may be that we can do really little exteriorly. Right? It may be that um, you know, somebody's, so my dad's um, in nursing home and can offer practically nothing. Right? But the offering of the heart, and so that very dependence can be the most beautiful offering. All right? So let's look now at the texts of the, of the Mass um, that speak about this. So it's striking in the, in the Mass how often the priest um, speaks in, with a we and not just with an I. So at the offertory in the, in the, Latin, in the Latin rite, the, the Novus Ordo, the priest says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. All right, it's doubly, now we take it for granted, right? We heard it every, you know, every time we go to Mass. But you sh we should pay attention there because it's doubly surprising. It's speaking of the sacrifice also as ours. And notice he doesn't say, pray, brethren, that our sacrifice, right? Because could have been written like that, but it's my sacrifice and yours. So why would it make that distinction, mine and yours? Anybody? So when it says mine, I don't think we mean just the priest, right? But it's his, so it's mine in the sense that he's acting in the person of Christ. And so he's making possible the exterior offering, Jesus Christ on the altar, who's offered to the Father. But yours, meaning we're offering the sacrifice of the heart of the Christian life of each one of us. Right? So that's why it's mine and yours. And then the second thing that should be surprising, although we take it for granted, is pray that it may be acceptable. But what are we offering? That's surprising, isn't it? We're offering Jesus Christ, the victim of Calvary, to the Father. How is it that we pray? May you find this acceptable. How could it not be acceptable? Why do we have to add that petition? Jesus Christ is gonna be infinitely acceptable. But there's a reason why we add that petition, right? Because there's another part to it, and that's our part. And we have to pray that that be found acceptable because it might not be found acceptable. Because what did Isaiah say about the sacrifice of Israel at a certain period? That it was an abomination, right? And so it might be that the Lord finds my sacrifice um, not pleasing. And how would it be not pleasing? Remember the parable of the wedding feast? And somebody comes in there and he's found without the wedding garment? It's, right, it's a strange parable. And it seems like Jesus is really harsh on that person. What happens? He's banished. He's kicked out. How is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? And he's banished into the outer darkness. How should we read that? The fathers of the church read the wedding garment as meaning charity. Right? Being in a state of grace and being habitually moved by love, right? Love for God and neighbor. 
And so that's what makes the sacrifice acceptable. But sometimes we live that more intensely than others. And sometimes it's possible that we don't have it at all, right? And that's when we're in a state of mortal sin. All right, so that's why we pray that. Pray that my sacrifice and yours may be found acceptable to God the Almighty Father. And then later, um, the Lord, um, the priest says, lift up your hearts. Again, showing that our hearts are called to be part of this. And lift up your hearts, that's this right here, right? That our hearts are to be lifted up, where? To the heavenly altar. Right? They're part of the sacrifice. Lift up your hearts. We have lifted them up to the Lord. And then there are four different Eucharistic prayers. Let's start with the first one. In the first Eucharistic prayer, um, we pray, the priest prays, remember, Lord, your servants and all gathered here, whose faith and devotion are known to you. For them, we offer you this sacrifice of praise, or they offer it for themselves and all those who are dear to them. So that or really means and, right? So the priest is saying, um, we offer it, that's the church, right? He himself, but the whole church offers it. But we too, that's the they, that would be the faithful present, they also offer it for themselves, in other words, to win graces for themselves, and for our loved ones, even if they're not present. So the beautiful thing about the Mass, different from other, sacri uh, other sacraments, is that the Mass can, have, can win graces for people who aren't there, right? Baptism only wins grace for the baptized person, right? I can't, um, somebody who doesn't get baptized simply can't receive baptismal grace. They can desire it, but that's, that's another matter. But with the, the sacrifice of the Mass, we can offer it for those who don't yet know Jesus Christ, right? for those who we want to um, come to know him. Right? So the Mass, um, and so that's what's said here, they offer it for themselves and all those who are dear to them. And it may be that some of those who are dear to us aren't Christian, like, like my dad, who I just mentioned a minute ago. Um, And so many who don't yet know Christ, all right? And then further on, um, the priest prays, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation of our service, that of your whole family. And right? so the oblation is, yes, Jesus Christ there, but also the offering of your whole family, and that has to refer to the interior offering of each one of us. We, your servants and your holy people, offer to you, to your glorious majesty, from the gifts that you have given us. This pure victim. And then later on, in the, still in the first Eucharistic prayer, the priest says, be pleased to look upon these offerings. So this is after the consecration. So well, that was before. Now, after the consecration, the priest still asks the Father to look kindly upon our offering. And again, that's strange, right? Because how could he not look kindly on it? It's Jesus Christ. But he, the priest prays, be pleased to look on these offerings with a serene and kindly countenance and to accept them as you once were pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel the just, 
the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the offering of your high priest, Melchizedek. A holy sacrifice, a spotless victim. It's surprising, right? Because Jesus Christ is a better offering, how much, than that of Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek, infinitely. But maybe our offering isn't better than that of Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek. And so that's why we pray that he look on it with a kindly and serene countenance. Does that make sense? And then he goes on asking that it be brought up to the heavenly altar, right? That an angel may take it up to your altar on high. Well, Jesus is already up there, right? So what needs to be taken up there? Jesus is there already. It's our offering that needs to be brought up there. Okay, so we're involved. Pope Benedict talks about this in um, the document I mentioned on the Mass, um, the Sacrament of Charity, right? And gives a beautiful explanation just of, of that very prayer that we pray, that, um, that our offering may be taken up to the, the heavenly altar. He says, this sacrifice is only complete. The Mass isn't complete yet. He says, the sacrifice is only complete when the world has become the place of love when we've made a civilization of love. Right? And obviously, we're not that there yet. And that's why we, we unite ourselves with those who worked for that. Right? So Abel, Abraham, Melchizedek, but also all the saints that we invoke in the canon. Right? The saints and martyrs and apostles. And above all, Mary, right? Joseph, Mary. And this is something common to all Eucharistic prayers. So every, so I've just given you the first Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon, but we find it in every, it, there can't be a Eucharistic prayer um, that doesn't ask for God's acceptance of our offering, not because something is lacking in the offering of Jesus Christ, but because of us, all right? Let's look at the, the third Eucharistic prayer. So it, the priest prays, Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the saving passion of your son, his wondrous resurrection and ascension into heaven, and as we look forward to his second coming, we offer you in thanksgiving this holy and living sacrifice. Right? And we should take that we as including ourselves. Right? Priest doesn't say I offer you, but we offer you. Look, we pray upon the oblation of your church and recognizing the sacrificial victim by whose death you will to reconcile us to yourself, grant that we, who are nourished by the body and blood of your Son and filled with his Holy Spirit, may become one body, one spirit in Christ. So that's, and when the priest puts down his hands like this, right, what's that a sign of? Yeah, calling the Holy Spirit. And so there's a fancy name for that. The epiclesis. Right? So the priest, before the consecration, puts his hand out, invokes the Holy Spirit so that the bread and the wine become Jesus Christ. But after the consecration, there's another epiclesis, no less important, and that's not over Jesus, not over the, the bread and the wine that became Jesus, but that's over us, right? And it's precisely what we just read. Grant that we may become one body, one spirit in Christ. Grant that we may be transformed form transfigured into him. Obviously, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Or at one time, but that we become progressively 
made into him. Right? And that, we'll talk about that next week as well when we look at Holy Communion. Okay. May he make of us an eternal offering to you. That's the ultimate purpose of the Mass. Right? We offer this perfect sacrifice so that we too can be made an eternal offering. Right? And that's going to be the life of heaven. Right? In heaven, we're going to be an eternal offering, meaning that we're going to live the joy of heaven for the glory of the Father. And in the heavenly liturgy, So when do we do this? Right? We can do it all through the Mass, but as I mentioned before, the offertory is a privileged time. Right? Because in the offertory, we're offering elements that are the fruit of our work. Right? Maybe just a little bit, right? It's bread and it's wine, and the fruit of the work of human hands, and that in some way can represent the whole of our life, all of our work of charity. So Pope Benedict, in, that, um, in a different place, in um, his encyclical on Christian hope, Space Salvi, um, spoke of, said this, there used to be a form of devotion, perhaps less practiced today, but quite widespread not long ago, that included the idea of offering up the minor hardships, the minor daily hardships that continually strike us like irritating little jabs, giving them a meaning. What does it mean to offer something up? To insert them into Christ's great compassion, right? So to insert them into Christ's passion, but Christ's passion is a compassion. In other words, he's suffering with us and for us. And so there's room in his sacred heart and in his passion for all of those little um, difficulties of the Christian life, but also the joys too. So even the small inconveniences of daily life could acquire meaning and contribute to the economy of human love. Maybe we might find it a good idea to revive this practice, he says. Yeah, typical poetic, right? Very understated. In other words, please revive this practice. <laughs> <laughs> and so when do we do this? Yeah, we, again, the offertory is a good opportunity. And so what do we pray in the offertory? Um, so the, um, the prayers... Yeah, mention the work of human hands. So the, the offertory in every liturgy has a, a kind of solemn aspect to it. Um, when the priest um, washes his hands and puts the, um, and with the, we pray that, um, and before that puts the water into the wine, right? He makes a prayer that, um, as the water is absorbed into the wine, right, Jesus is, um, so Jesus has become man to divinize us. Right? And so in a sense, that's already being prayed there at the offertory, that the, the water represents his humanity, the wine his divinity, making that union, and the water also represents us, right? our humanity, that's called to be divinized and united to his humanity, and divinity. Okay. Right, let's take a break here, and we'll... So who's the model for this? Who's the, the most perfect model? 
for our participation in the Mass. Mary, right? Obviously, Mary. So she did it on Calvary, right? So she was standing on Calvary, and she offered not the Mass, but the sacrifice of Calvary in the same way that we're called to participate in the Mass. But of course, um, in her case, it was her son crucified, and she was standing at the foot of the cross. So her offering was the supreme, supremely painful, right? But the supremely heartfelt participation in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Nobody will ever do it like she did it. Right, so we're, but we're called to model ourselves on her. And again, what made her offering so magnificent was what was, she, what was the offering of her life? What was her heart? Her son. That was her whole life and her heart. And so him being sacrificed above her on the cross was her entire heart that she offered with him. Second Vatican Council speaks about this. Um, in Lumen Gentium, the document of the church, it says the Blessed Virgin faithfully persevered in her union with her son unto the cross, where she stood in keeping with the divine plan, grieving exceedingly with her only begotten son, uniting herself with the maternal heart with his sacrifice. I th what was Mary doing at the foot of the cross? Right, she wasn't protesting the divine plan as we might, would have been natural, right? But she was co-offering. She was offering herself united with the maternal heart with his sacrifice and lovingly consenting to the immolation of this victim which she herself had brought forth. That's what Mary was doing on Calvary. She was consenting to his offering and offering herself with it. And so that's what we're called to do too, to consent, right? So our presence at Mass means we're consenting to the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. And it doesn't cause us, tragically, the pain that it caused Mary because we don't love him as she did. Right? But we, we're consenting to it, and we want to be more configured to her in offering the sacrifice. Right, so let's look at some texts of, um, of the magisterium. So we're going to look at Pius XII and Vatican II, and maybe, if we have time, uh, John Paul II and Pope Benedict, um, about how we should participate. So a beautiful text is by Pius XII from 1947, right after World War II. He wrote a beautiful document on the liturgy called Mediator Dei. And it's, it's a long document, but it's a masterpiece. And if you have some spare time, it's, um, it's great spiritual reading. Um, and so in it, he, um, he speaks about our participation. Says, he says, not only did the priests offer the sacrifice, but also all of the faithful. For what the priest does personally by virtue of his ministry, the faithful do collectively by virtue of their intention. We could say by virtue of the heart. And he goes on to say, well, how can I make that more efficacious, more like Mary's? In order that the oblation by which the faithful offer the divine victim in this sacrifice to the heavenly father. So let's just, um, 
in the mass, there's a direction, right? It's the offering of the son to his father. The whole mass is directed to the person of the father. We need the spirit to be able to be joined to Jesus. So it's a Trinitarian thing. The son of God is offering himself to his father through the power of the spirit, and we're being inserted through the power of the spirit. Right? So in order that this have its full effect, it's necessary that the people add something else, namely the offering of themselves as a victim. That's a pretty strong statement, right? But that's Pius XII, and we'll see Vatican II repeats it about five or six times. It's one of the most repeated teachings of the Second Vatican Council. But just a, a curiosity of mine, how many of you have heard this before, that we're called to add ourselves as a victim to the Mass? Anybody? All right, two, fantastic. Three, but that means many haven't heard, right? And if you haven't heard, there are tons more out there that haven't heard. Right, so so this is a task for us, and now for you, to, um, to be aware of this, but to make it known to others. Okay, so we're called to offer ourselves as a victim for the Prince of the Apostles, so Peter in that text, 1 Peter 2.9, um, or 2.5 before that, he says um, that as a holy priesthood, we're called to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then he quotes Romans 12.1. So each one of us should consecrate himself to the furthering of the divine glory, desiring to become as much like Christ as possible, right? And that means also in his suffering, a suffering of love. That's right? a high, high bar. Um, it is desirable, this is still Pius XII, brethren, that all the faithful should be aware that to participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice is their chief duty and supreme dignity. Right? That's the glory of the baptized, is that we can join in offering an infinite sacrifice to the Father, but we've got to join with ourselves. And so in such a way that we may be united as closely as possible with the high priest. So again, all Christians should possess the same dispositions as far as possible as those which Jesus had when he offered himself. Right, you might say, well, that's, that's absurd. Um, how can we do that? Well, by ourselves we can't, but that's, the whole, that's why there's the Eucharist, so that we progressively get configured to that. It means in a word, Pius XII says, that we must all undergo with Christ a mystical death on the cross, so that we can apply to ourselves the words of St. Paul, with Christ I am nailed to the cross. All right, so this is Pius Twelfth in Mediator Day. All right, what about Vatican II? Does it teach the same thing? And yes, um, in numerous documents. So I've given you three there. Sacrosanto Concilium was the first document of Vatican II um, from 1963, the, the document on the liturgy. And in this document, it speaks about um, I'm sure you've heard this, it calls for an, um, a full and active participation by the faithful in the liturgy. But what does that mean, a full and active participation, right? So very often I think people have heard this, but they think that it means that we are to stand up and sit down and say the responses and maybe be extraordinary Eucharistic ministers or, or something like that. 
right? But the full and active participation has got to be understood in the sense that we've been speaking about as offering the interior sacrifice, right? That's principally what it is. It's good if we can say the responses too, but right, that, that's really totally secondary, right? Because mass might be going on. So for example, we lived in, um, in Jerusalem for a year and sometimes we go to mass in Arabic and I couldn't understand a word, but we can still have full and active participation by offering the interior sacrifice. So it, Vatican II says this, in the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. It is the primary and indispensable source from which the faithful are to derive the true Christian spirit, right? participating in the offering of Jesus Christ by offering ourselves. Okay, later on in the same document, that was number 14, number 48, it goes on to say, the church therefore earnestly desires that Christ's faithful when present at the mystery of faith, the mass, should not be there as strangers or silent spectators. On the contrary, through a good understanding of the rites and prayers, they should take part conscious of what they are doing with devotion and full collaboration. All right, so, so far I think people have heard that, right? That we should be aware, we shouldn't be doing something else like praying the rosary or, or something unconnected to the mass, but we should be, right, paying attention. But what does it really mean? And it goes on to say, by offering the immaculate victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also with him, they should learn also to offer themselves. And I think that's what most people haven't heard or not enough. Right? So that's explaining what does that full and active participation mean. Right? It means above all, recognizing that a mass, the mass is a sacrifice. In the sacrifice, the son is being offered to the father, but the whole mystical body is likewise being offered and we're called to do that in a living way, in an active way, in a voluntary way, in a heartfelt way. Okay, so that's Sacrosanctum Concilium. The document, the most important document of Vatican II, probably, is the document on the church. That was kind of the focus of the Second Vatican Council. And there in Lumen Gentium 11, it's speaking about the sacraments. And when it speaks about the Eucharist, it, it says the Eucharistic sacrifice. It's interesting. So we think, yes, the Eucharist is the source and summit, but Lumen Gentium actually says it's the sacrifice, taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the source and summit of the whole Christian life. They offer the divine victim to God, to the Father, and offer themselves along with it. Same idea. All right, I'm sorry, I'm beating this to the ground, but uh, I'm gonna keep on beating it to the ground. Um, because Vatican II does so, right? Um, another document, um, this is the one on the formation of priests, Presbyterorum, or, on the priesthood, um, Presbyterorum Ordinis, number five, it says, the most blessed Eucharist contains the whole spiritual good of the church, Christ himself our living bread, giving life to men, etc. Um, so priests must instruct their people to offer to God the Father the divine victim in the sacrifice of the Mass and to join to it the offering of their own lives. Right? So that's a, an instruction given to priests that they're to teach the faithful 
that that's what active participation mass really means, right? But tragically, I don't think it's um, gotten, the message hasn't gotten across. Um, in Lumen Gentium, the middle of, Lumen, so Lumen Gentium speaks about the different states of life in the church also. It's on the church. So it speaks right in the very, in the middle about the laity. So the lay faithful, the common priesthood, or royal priesthood. And there too, it speaks about how all of our um, concerns, labors, joys, sacrifices can be offered to God the Father through the Mass. Um, together with the offering of the Lord's body, they, the faithful, are most fittingly offered, and, and all of our, our deeds in Christ are offered through the celebration of the Mass. Okay? Thus, as those everywhere who adore in holy activity, beautiful phrase, that's the task of the lady, to adore not just in contemplation, like um, a monk or, or, um, or nun, um, but to adore in holy activity. And so our holy activities are our work, et cetera, our family life, our recreation, our friendships. And to offer that as part of the, uh, as our interior offering. So it seems that um, in Vatican II, so, Vatican II was different than other um, ecumenical councils. How so? Normally, an ecumenical council is called. Okay, but Vatican II is, was in the place of the Vatican. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the Council of Trent to confront the Reformation, the councils in the first millennium, the Arian heresy, Nestorian heresy, etc. Um, Vatican II. There's not an identifiable heresy in the same way. But what would have been the chief concern of, um, blessed, of St. John the 23rd who called it? Anybody? Oh, that's a hard question. Okay, yeah. So he's basically dealing with a different kind of problem, not a direct heresy like the Protestant Reformation, but a disconnect. And, and we could call it nominal Christianity. In other words, the fact that for an increasing number of Catholics, Christ and the church don't, they're, in other words, we're Christian in name, Catholic in name, but not um, by way of interior um, identity. In other words, not by way of configuration to Christ in the sense of living uh, for him. Um, and so, um, a key concern of the Second Vatican Council is precisely what can we do as a remedy to nominal Christianity, right? And that's why the church was the key focus, um, to revitalize in people's mind that the glory, the dignity of being a member of Jesus Christ. And, but there's something that goes with that, right? That's the co-responsibility of being a member of Jesus Christ. And if we're a co-responsible, a share in his mission, and therefore a share in his prophetic, priestly, and kingly mission. And how do we do that? Well, that's why there are so many texts from the Second Vatican Council that speak about active participation in the Mass, but not just standing up and sitting down and saying the parts, but offering ourselves together with the Immaculate Victim. That's how, in other words, what we do outside of the Mass, bringing that, um, the Eucharistic life. So that's a key answer Another key answer that the Second Vatican Council makes is the universal call to holiness. Right? Again, 
not just one place, but several places in the documents, in Lumen Gentium, in, in um, Gathering Made Space, in various places. And we could, they go together, right? Because the universal call to holiness is, in a sense, the same thing as this interior, active, full participation in the Mass, because that's what we're called to offer, is our striving to live a life of holiness, right? our struggle to do so. So the two things go together. John Paul II, um, when he was elected pope, he, saw, he said on his first um, address that he saw his mission to implement the Second Vatican Council, and that what that principally meant was um, living the universal call to holiness. Right? But we could put it together with living it in this way, Eucharistically, not simply by willpower, right, will fail, right, but to get from the Mass the source of that striving for holiness and also the summit of um, offering it. Yeah, no, great question. Um, so every Mass, whether there's faithful present or not, is really public. So there isn't, so we say that, there's a, that's a term, a private mass, when the priest's offering without the faithful present. But in reality, every mass is the offering of Jesus Christ and his church. So when the priest prays it, he says he's offering also the oblation of the church. So we're included in it, even if Father's saying it when I'm not there, right? Just as we can, when we are there though, right, we can, make known the intentions of others who aren't there, and likewise the priest is making known the intentions of the whole church. So every mass, in reality, is an offering of Jesus Christ and his whole church. But, of course it's desirable that as many of the faithful be present, because there's an, uh, so maybe I need to explain something here. Um, so, we, so let's shift now to the effects of the mass. Not communion. So, the Mass has two principal effects. One we're going to look at next week, that's Holy Communion. But another effect of the Mass is precisely this ascending one. So every Mass gives a glory to God that is infinite from the, the Immaculate Victim who's being offered, Jesus Christ. So in every Mass, there's an infinite value. And at the same time, in every Mass, the church is involved, and that's not an infinite value because we're not infinite, but also you can see it's something that can be more or less pleasing to God, depending on how the church strives for holiness, how much desire she has. And so in every mass has this value, but there's an added value when we're present at the mass with, uh, with the heart, and with more of the heart, right? And so the mass, yes, in, its, in the Jesus part, in the Jesus Christ part is infinite, but in the part of the faithful, um, it's always present, but it can be more intense if we go more frequently and seek to live in such a way that I can be offered better. Does that make sense? Um, so this is why we offer many masses for intentions, because otherwise it would seem um, unnecessary or superfluous. And this is a, a common question that people ask. Um, how, if every Mass is the offering of Jesus Christ, and on Calvary he redeemed the world um, with his one offering, what do we need this for? And so we don't need it in the sense of adding something to the merit of Calvary. Right, so we're not doing that. 
What are we doing? We're joining in the offering of Calvary. So nothing is being added to infinite on Christ's part, but something is being added, and that's our offering. So something really is being added. And so that's why it's, it's preferable, obviously, that the faithful be present when the mass is offered. But it's still meaningful, and not just me, that's an understatement, it's still glorious when none of the faithful can be present. It's still our offering. All right? Great question. Um, and that's why we want to, um, if we haven't, we, so we can offer the mass for various intentions. And every mass gets offered for the whole church. Right? So that's just structural to it. It can't not be offered for the whole church, right? Because it's the offering of Jesus Christ. And it can't not be offered for um, the, we could say, the, the structural part of the church, right? So it has, it should, it's written into the Eucharist prayers that it's offered for the Holy Father, for the bishops, for the faithful, etc. right? But we can also offer it for particular intentions, right? And so that um, doesn't take away that it's for all, that it's offered for particular intentions, right? So that's the idea of having a mass intention. So we've got the whole church, we've got a particular intention, and then there can also be a personal intention, right? Suppose I didn't um, give a mass stipend such that the mass is offered for, say, my father, but I'm still going to mass with intentions, right? We could call that the personal fruit of every mass, and that the priest himself will have intentions, each one of the faithful will have intentions, um, all of the loved ones that we're offering it for. Right? Does that make sense? So we could say that the mass has three levels of um, intention there, the whole church, and we could even go further, the whole world, right? because the mass makes an effect on the whole world. We don't see it, but that's, it's the principal way by which graces go to those who don't yet believe. Right? We don't see it, we can't necessarily connect the dots, but we can know in faith that by having the mass offered, and by participating more intensely, more in a more heartfelt way, more graces are gonna go outside the physical body yeah. than if it wasn't that way. All right, does that make sense to everyone? So we wanna say that the mass has an infinite value, but it's worthwhile that it be offered again and again and again. Infinite in Christ, but finite in the offering of our heart. So more mass is better. But more importantly than that, more participation with the heart is better. Right? So it's not so much a quantity thing as a quality thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all, mm -hmm. right. And we'll, we'll cover that next week, but yeah. So the church puts a limit on that, but there's not a, a limit on our being present and offering. And then, so let's look a little bit at the Sunday mass obligation. So it's interesting that we don't have a, there's not a Sunday communion obligation. There's a yearly communion obligation, a yearly confession obligation, but there's a weekly and also holy days of obligation, obligation to be present offering, right? So the, the weekly, and so that's interesting, isn't it? 
there's a much greater obligation on the offering of the sacrifice than on the receiving the fruits of it. Right? And both are, are crucial for the Christian life, but it's interesting that the obligation is in the offering, just simply to show us how important that is. Right? But again, I think most people don't get it, right? Because they think it's simply an obligation for them to be there or something. But it's an obligation to participate in the most glorious thing that a human being can do. To offer God to God. And offer ourselves with him. Alright? So that's the, the Sunday Mass obligation. A glory. So there's a beautiful document of Pope Benedict on this. And he remembers, um, and also of... Um, John Paul II. So Pope Benedict, um, he says, um, this is actually, um, it's a homily that he gave. Without the day of the Lord, we, couldn't, we cannot exist. He says that um, there were some martyrs in the uh, third century, I can't remember exactly, who were mar in 304, the um, persecution of Diocletian, who were arrested for attending Sunday Mass. And so they were questioned about this. Why did you risk your lives and now undergo death for coming to Sunday Mass? And they answered, without Sunday Mass, without the day of the Lord, we cannot exist as Christians. And so the glory of, of this, whereas we tend to think of it as an external necessity, but it's um, a dignity. And so Sunday being... Um, the day in which, um, in Jewish reckoning, it's the first day of the week. So we can think of Sunday as the eighth day. In other words, a new creation, a new beginning. And therefore, a new consecration of creation. And so that's the, the obligation, is that we come bringing what we've done during the week. right? And that's how it sanctifies time. Right? Because we bring time to the Mass and all of that gets offered. Right? And so it's really the Sunday Mass obligation is simply the, the Christian life of sanctifying time by including it into Christ's offering. One last point. Um, something, all right, it's in controversial territory, orientation and liturgy, but I don't want to stake out a particular but just to explain something. So in, in the old, um, before the Second Vatican Council, um, mass would be offered, was typically um, facing east liturgically, all right? So in the, in the first millennium, it was actually facing east geographically. So churches built in the first thousand years were always oriented east-west, and with the idea that the offering would be made in the direction of the rising sun which is the direction of life, right? The west being the direction of death because of the sunset. And so Christ, um, so here's the, the idea of this is twofold. It's that the east represents Christ who will come again, and so the mass has this dimension, I haven't really spoken about it yet, that's also eschatological, right? So we're making present our offering to the celestial altar, but we're also doing it in expectation and longing of Christ's second coming. And so we're offering, as it were, time, the time of the church, to Christ who will come to fully redeem time and society. But we're doing it together. So here's the thing. So very often, there was the idea that the priest had his back to the people. Um, 
But the way we should think of it is simply a symbol of showing that we're making the same offering because we're facing the same direction. Right? The, um, there's a word for the, the center of the church called the nave, which comes from the Latin boat, novice. And so it's the idea of the church being a ship on the way to harbor, which is Christ and the second coming, and we're all moving in the same direction and making the same offering. Two different roles, ministerial priest and people, ministerial priesthood, common priesthood, but it's the same offering. I'm not saying that we have to be facing um, ad orientum, but I'm saying that it had a meaning that we have to recognize no matter how the priest is facing. Right? So no matter which way the priest is facing, if he's facing the people, we still want to be, see that the, the mass has this upward direction and that we're offering it together to the Lord who is coming. Right? And that represented in the apse, represented in the tabernacle, representing in the altar cross, etc. Right? So that's the dimension of sanctifying time, and we've run out of time. Um, and so next week we'll have our last class on uh, Holy Communion. Yeah. And bring questions to the to next class. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for these and all thy gifts. Through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.